Let's uh, commit this time to God. Uh, Father in heaven, we thank you for the promise from your word that it won't return to you without accomplishing what you purpose. So we pray today that you would accomplish your purposes in each of our lives. I pray that you would meet the need of every heart here today uh, as we think about your word together. So give us listening ears, open hearts, and uh, reshape our wills to obey those things that you reveal to us today. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we're continuing in a series on the prophet Isaiah, which we'll finish next week. We began it in 2021, we continued it in 2022, and we're bringing it to an end next week. So it's a big book. Uh, Isaiah has more chapters than any other book in the Bible except Psalms, although it has fewer words than the book of Jeremiah. Um, Isaiah is one of the biggest. And... uh, It's quoted more often in the New Testament or referred to more often in the New Testament than any other Old Testament book other than the book of Psalms. So it plays a significant role in helping us to understand the ministry of Jesus. Uh, And and so there's really important things in here. So let's read Isaiah 65. Um, We'll read the whole chapter and then I'll offer some thoughts on it. Isaiah 65. And this is the word of God. Yahweh is speaking. I was ready to be sought by those who did not ask for me. I was ready to be found by those who did not seek me. I said, here I am, here I am, to a nation that was not called by my name. I spread out my hands all the day to a rebellious people who walk in a way that is not good, following their own devices. The people who provoke me to my face continually, sacrificing in gardens and making offerings on bricks, who sit in tombs and spend the night in secret places, who eat pig's flesh and broth of tainted meat is in their vessels, who say, keep to yourself, do not come near me, for I am too holy for you. These are a smoke in my nostrils, a fire that burns all the day. Behold, it is written before me, I will not keep silent, but I will repay. I will indeed repay into their lap both your iniquities and your father's iniquities together, says the Lord. Because they made offerings on the mountains and insulted me on the hills, I will measure into their lap payment for their former deeds. Thus says the Lord, As the new wine is found in the cluster and they say do not destroy it for there is blessing in it so I will do for my servants sake and not destroy them all. I will bring forth offspring from Jacob and from Judah possessors of my mountains. My chosen shall possess it and my servants shall dwell there. Sharon shall become a pasture for flocks and the valley of Achor a place for the herds to lie down. For my people who have sought me. But you who forsake the Lord, who forget my holy mountain, who set a table for fortune and fill cups of mixed wine for destiny, I will destine you to the sword and all of you shall bow down to the slaughter. Because when I called, you did not answer. When I spoke, you did not listen. But you did what was evil in my eyes and chose what I did not delight in. Therefore thus says the Lord God, Behold, my servants shall eat, but you shall be hungry. Behold, my servants shall drink, but you shall be thirsty. Behold, my servants shall rejoice, but you shall be put to shame. 
Behold, my servants shall sing for gladness of heart, but you shall cry out for pain of heart and shall wail for breaking of spirit. You shall leave your name to my chosen for a curse and the Lord God will put you to death. But his servants he will call by another name so that he who blesses himself in the land shall bless himself by the God of truth. And he who takes an oath in the land shall swear by the God of truth because the former troubles are forgotten and are hidden from my eyes. For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth and the former things shall not be remembered or come into mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem to be a joy and her people to be a gladness. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. No more shall be heard in it the sound of weeping and the cry of distress. No more shall there be in it an infant who lives but a few days or an old man who does not fill out his days. For the young man shall die a hundred years old and the sinner a hundred years old shall be accursed. They shall build houses and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They shall not build and another inhabit. They shall not plant and another eat. For like the days of a tree shall the days of my people be and my chosen shall long enjoy the work of their hands. They shall not labour in vain or bear children for calamity. For they shall be the offspring of the blessed of the Lord and their descendants with them. Before they call, I will answer. While they are yet speaking, I will hear. The wolf and the lamb shall graze together. The lion shall eat straw like the ox and dust shall be the serpent's food. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain says the Lord. Now, as we began the series of Isaiah a few years ago, um, I pointed out, I learnt this from an Australian scholar called Bill Dumbrell, that the book of Isaiah swings backwards and forwards like a pendulum from the threat of judgment to the promise of salvation, of being saved by God, of escaping from his anger. So threat, judgment, promise, salvation, all the way through. In the early chapters of the book, there's more threat. There's some promise, but they usually come through by way of a glimmer of hope. But as the book extends, as it gets towards its conclusion, the promise has become brighter and more extensive and the threat is less emphasised. But here, we have an equal mingling of both. Threat, judgement, salvation, promise. We see them both. And what that means is, everyone who heeds these words is confronted with a choice. Which will it be for you? Because we're talking ultimate reality here. If you paid attention to the last half of the reading, that's about the new heavens and the new earth. That's the eternal destiny of everybody who has put their trust in God now. The eternal destiny. And we're going to think about that in a moment. But the first part lays out the challenge. Would you live for God now or would you continue to reject him? Because the blessings of this eternal state, which just sound too wonderful to miss, are confined to those people who trust God in the present. And so the judgment of God will be targeted. It won't be a scattergun approach. It won't be like shooting at anything. 
The judgment of God will be targeted only at those people who have resisted him, who have insulted him and who have continued to do that without turning from their ways. But for those who, however meekly, have put their trust in God, they'll discover the blessings that we describe, we find described so wonderfully here. Now, it's a fair bit going on this, so we've got a bit, to, we've got a bit of work to do. So I hope you'll be able to stay with me because almost every single line well every single line invites really close meditation and we haven't got time to do all of that but if I was to ask you after having heard all of the book of Isaiah what's it about if you said if somebody said to you what did you do at church are we finishing up the book of Isaiah oh it's a big book never read it what's it about what would you say right because it's a challenging book it's a it's a massive book uh, and it's a very important one and so I know that Ray went through a bit of a summary of the book last week but you can't deal with this passage if you don't tie together a lot of the threads that have already emerged threads that will go on into the new testament so isaiah prophesied for a period of about 60 years if you go back to the very the very start of the book you'll see the names of a number of kings that that were on the throne of israel when isaiah came in to do his work Uh, so he, he prophesied for a period of 60 years now i was telling you before about this uh, preacher from Scotland, James Phillip. Now, I discovered him some years ago, but several years after he died, because at a very early stage of his preaching career, somebody thought his preaching is so good, we should record it. And so it was recorded, first of all, on tape. And these people who recorded his ministry sent it to missionaries around the world. And so there's this huge volume of recorded sermons of James Phillip from Edinburgh And his son, who has a church in Glasgow, has maintained this preaching archive. Now, I've listened to quite a lot of his sermons, not nearly all of them, not even a fraction, really, because he preached for over 40 years at this particular church. Uh, But I was listening to some of the sermons he gave right towards the end of his preaching career on the book of Romans. And he went back and he said, well, I preached Romans in this year. and He must have preached Romans about eight times. So over the course of a 40-year preaching career, if you were to write down every word he spoke, you would expect that he would repeat himself once or twice, wouldn't you? Isaiah repeats himself. He has to. Because over that 60-year period, things didn't change that much. And so he was constantly addressing the tendency of God's people to drift away from God's law. Now, have you ever found yourself drifting? Or are you one of those Christians who gets it right 100% of the time? (laughs) Then we need to pay attention to Isaiah. If you think, I've heard this bit before, well, forgive him. He he preached for 60 years. And of course he's going to come back to some of the same ideas. And so what we have in, in the book of Isaiah is his preaching, a record of his preaching career condensed into book form into these messages that apply in particular ways. So chapter 1 to 39 is the first big division. And they're words that were spoken to the people of Isaiah's generation, dealing with particular issues that needed to be addressed in the light of God's law. Now in chapter 1 to 39 we read about God's solution to the problems facing his wayward people and his ultimate solution is to raise up a new and better David. David was the great king that all Israel looked back to. He's the best we had. And so God says, well, I'm actually going to send a better David and he's going to establish my reign on earth and it will be perfect. 
And so this great David is going to establish God's rule across the world. So there'll be no more enemies and there'll be perfect safety. Now, chapters 40 to 55, God has been saying through the prophet Isaiah, if you keep on disobeying me, you will be taken into captivity by the Babylonians. And we know that happened. That's part of the history of Isaiah, and we can read it in the history books of the Old Testament. But the Babylonians did what Isaiah had warned. They came in and they took the residents of Jerusalem and Judah, all that was left of God's people, and they transported them to Babylon. And that was the captivity. Isaiah 40 to 55 was written in advance of that happening to say, well, it's going to happen, and these are the things that God needs you to know while you're in captivity. One of the most important messages they needed to know was that the captivity would not last forever, that God would bring them back from Babylon. But they had to wait for that to happen. Then the last section of the book, chapters 56 to 66, are directed particularly, written way in advance, to the needs of the people who will return from Babylon and have to live in a ruined city. Can you imagine living in a city that's in ruins? Imagine if a war came to Mafra and everything that you knew and cared about, including your house, including the Shire Hall, were just wiped out. And you, you'd gone, but then you had to come back. What would you do? You'd have to start again. Now, that's hard work. Have you seen the floods that have ripped through some places? I heard an interview with some people who'd lost a, a farm through a bushfire one year and a flood sometime down the track. And they said, if you had to choose between bushfire or flood, choose bushfire, because it finishes everything, but flood just leaves you a lot of mess. But I've never had to recover from, from a natural disaster, but I've visited plenty of people who have, because we had terrible bushfires through our area not, a couple of times. And uh, to, to speak to people whose lives have been upended by a natural disaster, it, it's, it's just hard work. Jerusalem, everything that they held precious had been destroyed by the Babylonians. They came back and Isaiah in these last 11 chapters addresses the particular needs of people who come back to a city in ruins. Of people who may be tempted to think that God's not who they thought he was. Maybe they think God isn't as strong as the gods of Babylon who ruined us in the first place. And so these are the particular things that Isaiah is addressing in these, in these chapters. And so one of the big themes that comes through the book of Isaiah at every stage, but particularly towards the end, is the need to wait. Who finds waiting easy? I tap my fingers while the microwave cooks. <laughs> But I can remember a world without microwaves where you just had to be patient, right? But since the discovery of the microwave, we think, come on, 30 seconds, come on. It's hard to be patient, isn't it? And yet one of the messages of the book of Isaiah is that we have to be. Because God is going to restore not just Jerusalem and not just his people, but the whole world. If you can imagine a better world, then Isaiah contains many of the glimpses that will probably rest in your imagination. And so in chapter 40, verse 31, right at the beginning of the second section of the book, at the end of chapter 40, we're told that those who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not be faint. Now, many of us know and love that verse. But the promise of rising up is for those who wait on God. 
but waiting's hard. So chapter 59, verse 9, the people are speaking to God and they're saying, justice is far from us and righteousness does not overtake us. We hope for light and behold darkness and for brightness, but we walk in gloom. So they say, yes, God, we've heard your promises, but gee, it's hard to wait for them. Now the word hope there, we hope for light, is the same word as we've already seen for wait. So we're waiting for the light that you've promised to come. Why is it taking so long? But what should people do while they're waiting? Well, chapter 59, verse 2 has the answer. It says, Your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face so that he does not hear. The problem with their waiting is that they're waiting faithlessly. How do we demonstrate our faith? Probably the number one demonstration of faith is prayer. But if you persist in sin, that will make prayer almost impossible. You won't feel like it because you're almost too embarrassed to come to God. But the other thing is that from God's point of view, persistent sin makes it impossible for him to hear us. So Isaiah 59 verse 2, your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God. Your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. So then we get to Isaiah 64 verse 1, which Ray preached last week. Have a look at it because this is integral to understanding this chapter we've looked at today. Isaiah 64 verse 1, the people say to God, oh that you would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains might quake at your presence. So that's a prayer, that's the equivalent in Old Testament speak for what Jesus tells us we need to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth. They're saying, God, come down. Now that's using the language of the Exodus because when you read about the Exodus where God rescued his people out of Egypt, what did God do? He came down. So they're saying, do it again, God. Bring us a new Exodus. Come down. Have you ever in your honest prayers to God said hurry up have you I have we're actually told to we're told in the New Testament we can pray come Lord Jesus come Lord Jesus when Jesus comes the whole world will end and a whole new world will be made but we're told to pray come Lord Jesus as the Bible's final prayer in the book of Revelation but Jesus says pray your kingdom come We want God's kingdom to come in all its fullness. So we're to pray for it. But that's that's this prayer here. Oh, that you would rend. They're saying, come on, God, do it. But verse 7, they admit, you've hidden your face from us. Verses 11 to 12. Our holy and beautiful house, in other words, the temple, where our fathers praised you has been burned by fire and all our pleasant places have become ruins. Will you restrain yourself at these things, O Lord? Will you keep silent? and afflict us so terribly it's hard to know whether that's a prayer of faith or unbelief but it's a prayer they're saying come on God do something this must upset you it upsets us so come down do something again and so Isaiah 65 is the answer to those prayers and so verses 1 to 5 we see the silence of God so verse 1 Yahweh, the God of Israel, the God of the whole world, he says, I was ready to be sought by those who did not ask for me. 
I was ready to be found by those who did not seek me. I said, here I am, here I am. Now that here I am is very important because within that is the name of God. If you remember Exodus 3, where Moses saw a bush on fire that wasn't consumed and, and a voice from the bush spoke to him, and he says, go and tell Pharaoh to let my people go. And, and Moses says to the voice speaking to him, who should I say sent me? He said, say, I am sent you. And that's the name Yahweh, the God who is always, past, present and future. Tell them, I am sent you. Tell them Yahweh sent you. Well, this is the God who says, you think I haven't been listening, but I've been waiting for you to pray. Now look what he says there. Uh, I was ready to be sought by those. Have you ever thought about that, about God? Did you know that God likes to hear you pray? It's not an imposition. You're talking to a God who longs to hear you speak to him. That's the privilege of prayer. But it's, it's, it's probably the most fundamental sign of our depending on him. And yet it's very often the last resort. I've got a wonderful record at home by a chap called Lee Von Helm and he's written a song all about the the trials of being a farmer and everything's gone wrong on the farm and he says, I guess all I can do now is pray. Well, I wonder if things had been different if the first thing he did was pray. But we often think of prayer as a last resort and it should be our first and daily resort because we have a God who is waiting to hear us. That's what we're told. Look at this, verse 2. I spread out my hands all the day. Now, in the Hebrew world, to spread your hands out was a sign that you're pleading for something. That's the posture of pleading prayer. And who's doing it? God is. He's pleading with his people, come on, talk to me. Tell me what you need. Why is it that we feel sometimes our prayers unanswered because we probably haven't offered them. Talk to God. Get used to the habit of seeking him in prayer because he's waiting. He wasn't hiding. I had to talk to a chap some years ago. He came to see me. His wife had told him she was going to leave because he just wouldn't stop cheating on her. And so she'd seen me too. And he came in and he slammed his hand on my bench, on my desk, and he said, Where's God? Well, probably a better time to ask that was when he had his arms around another woman. Where was God then? So people sometimes say, oh, God's done this, God's done that to me. What we're talking about here is the hardness of human hearts towards God, not the hardness of God's heart towards humans. If you don't think God's answering your prayers, ask, have you really been seeking him? But if you're sure you have, because there's times in all of our lives when we just pray and pray and pray, and it doesn't seem to... If you're sure that you have been seeking him according to his will and purpose, then just cling on, because he is waiting. And so Yahweh addresses these remarks to a rebellious people who walk in a way that is not good. Well, not good reminds us of what God says way back in creation. Uh, to walk in a way that's not good. Remember what God said about each day of creation? It is good, it is good, it is good. To walk in a way that's not good means to walk in a way that is not according to the will of God. And so these people, verse 3, they provoke God. They provoke him to his face. And, and they offer false worship. 
God prescribed how he was to be approached in the Old Testament and they're doing everything but that. Uh, amongst other things, they sit in tombs and spend the night in secret places, verse 4. Uh, in other words, they're asking from the dead. Now, our culture's big on that. Um, we've got horoscopes and things like that, haven't we? When we were in um, Whitby in Yorkshire, we walked past a, a booth where a gypsy woman promises to tell your fortune. And there was a queue waiting to go in. Right. Uh, Isaiah chapter 8 actually says don't consult the dead and yet these people are hanging around tombs thinking that maybe the ones that have gone before have something that they can pass on well that just can't be all of the pagan ritual practices that are described here or hinted at here are ways of manipulating God it's like getting God into an arm wrestle and saying well you've got to listen to me now that's not how God works. God longs to give his people the things that he knows they need. So we ask in humility, not through manipulative practices. Now in verse 5, there's a particularly troubling one. One of the instances that God points out about these people who are not having their prayers answered because he's turned his face from them is, these people say, keep to yourself, do not come near me, for I am too holy for you. Now I don't think they're talking to God. I don't think that. I think what he's talking to here is religious leaders or people who think that they form a sort of religious elite, the A-grade people of God. The, the, the sort of people who say, well, I'm not going to talk to you because you're beneath my standards. You don't know nearly as much about God as I do. Now, we get the phrase holier-than-thou attitude. Have you, you heard of that? If you ever hear of somebody being described as holier than thou it comes from Isaiah chapter 65 this is probably addressed to the the religious leaders Um, now there's a lot more that can be said about that but any religious leaders any Christian leadership that expresses itself in anything other than humility is getting the understanding of Christian leadership badly wrong because it's pretty obvious that we're all coming from the point of view of being sinners who need to be forgiven so we all have that in common but in the new testament we're told we're all one in christ jesus so yes christian leaders are needed but it doesn't mean they're better than anybody else not at all and so this holier than thou attitude is one that that god condemns and it should not be found amongst the leaders of his people So we move on to the second part of chapter 5 and there's a threat there, a big threat and God pronounces judgment on rebels. He says there is smoke in my nostrils, a fire that burns all all day. What that means is just a constant irritation. Imagine being caught in front of a barbecue and the wind's blowing in your direction all day. That's that's what's being spoken of here. Uh, And so God's not going to do nothing about it. He's going to express his righteous anger. Um, they've asked him to rend the heavens and come down and he will but when he comes down he's going to save those who've been faithful to him and judge those who haven't and uh, and in verse 7 he says your iniquities and your father's iniquity together says the lord now that doesn't mean we'll be judged for the things that our parents did what it means is you haven't turned away from them and in fact you've added to them so the sins of their ancestors they're continuing in and God's going to repay them or measure into their lap payment for their former deeds. So in other words, when God judges, 
It will be perfectly just and fair. He will give exactly the repayment that our sins deserve. But in contrast to his judgment, verses 8 to 10, there's another promise. And that's that God will save his people. Now this is a curious verse. Thus says the Lord, as the new wine is found in the cluster, and they say, do not destroy it, for there is blessing in it, so I will do for my servant's sake and not destroy them all. I will bring forth offspring from Jacob and from Judah, possessors of my mountains. My chosen shall possess it and my servant shall dwell there. Now that verse 8 about the new wine, I understand, and I'm no expert on these things, but I have read about this, that the very best product of the grape is the juice that you don't have to squeeze out of it by crushing it. Now remember back in chapter 63, we had the anointed redeemer who has to trample the wine press. So that's how they used to get the juice out of the grapes, by squashing them, by treading on them. Apparently, the sweetest juice is the juice that comes out without any crushing. And I understand that the very finest of champagne is produced from that source, which is why it costs so much, because there's so little of it. And to fill a whole bottle... It takes a lot of grapes. But apparently the sweetest juice is the juice that comes from the grape on its own. That just sort of sneaks out without being crushed. And that's an image that God is going to preserve his people. So judgment will be targeted and his people will be safe. And his people, if we're to believe this image, are to him like the sweetest juice of the grape. And so verse 9 is this promise, I will bring forth offspring from Jacob. That word offspring means seed. Very important Bible word, seed. Because it was the seed of the woman back in Genesis 3 who's going to crush the serpent. Abraham was promised seed and through that seed the whole world would be blessed. And so God says, I'm keeping the promises I made to the ancient ones. And they're going to inherit the mountains the mountains that the foolish ones are worshipping on, he says they're going to belong to my chosen ones. My servants shall dwell there. Now verse 10 is a beautiful picture. If you know anything about the geography of the land, Sharon will become a pasture for flocks. Well, back in chapter 33 of Isaiah, Sharon is a wasteland. It used to be fertile, now it's a desert. And then the valley of Achor shall be a place for herds to lie down. Sharon's in the west, valley of Achor in the east. What it's saying is the whole land will be good. No desert anymore. Achor was famous because if you know the story from the book of Joshua about the man who snuck away with the loot from the city of Jericho, remember him? His name was Achan. He was buried under a pile of rocks in the valley of Achor. So that's a way of saying fertility is going to be perfected, no more deserts, but sin will disappear. No more burial mounds. It's a poetic way of saying everything is going to be as it should be. Well, who are, the, who are these, these promises for? Well, they're for the people who have sought Yahweh. They're the people who have sought me, in verse 10. Now, sought, that's just the past tense for seek. Isaiah 55 says, you shall, you, you shall find me when you seek me with all your heart. So are we seeking the things that uh, that Yahweh promises? Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon his name while he's near. 
Well, in verses 11 to 16, we get the threat and promise combined and they're compared and contrasted. Verse 11, you who forsake the Lord, who forget my holy mountain, who set a table for fortune and fill cups of mixed wine for destiny. Now, fortune and destiny were names of other gods. And so these people are serving other gods. They're setting the table for other gods. But to trust in God uh, means to continue to depend on him in prayer, uh, even when we can't necessarily see. So the New Testament says we walk by faith, not by sight. But these people are going for the things that they can see, the worship of the foreign gods that they should have had nothing to do with. So verse 12 says they're destined for judgment, they're destined for the sword because they didn't answer when God called them. But then verses 13 and following give us this series of contrasts. Behold, now behold is an old-fashioned way of saying look. Look and see what happens. My servants shall eat, but you shall be hungry. My servants shall drink, but you shall be thirsty. My servants shall rejoice, but you shall be put to shame. So there's this stunning series of contrasts. You want fortune and destiny, you're going to go hungry and thirsty and you're going to be gloomy. Trust in Yahweh and you'll eat, drink and rejoice. So you choose. Which sounds like the better thing to pin your hopes on for the future. But at the end of that little passage there, verse 16... Yahweh promises that for those who put their trust in him now, the former troubles will be forgotten and will be hidden from his eyes. That's what Alec Matea calls divine amnesia. Now, is your life, does your life contain any difficulty? Is there anything that you're wishing would go away? Do you ever feel, come Lord Jesus? Please pray, come Lord Jesus. It's a thoroughly biblical thing to pray. Come Lord Jesus, make everything new. Now the reason why we want Jesus to come and make things new so passionately is because we know that life isn't as it should be. But all of those things, the former troubles according to verse 16, what's going to happen to them? Now you need to underline this and colour it in and remember it because the things that make us groan and say, come Lord Jesus, will be forgotten. Former troubles. Yahweh says they're going to be hidden from his eyes. So they won't be a trouble to us anymore if God's forgotten them. That's this beautiful picture of this complete reign of peace when God comes down. So verses 17 to 25. Now, these are immortal words and and, and it would be a wonderful thing if you memorised in your head. Isaiah 65. Isaiah 65. You need to be able to come back to this when the burdens of life are getting you down. For behold, look, says God, This is what happens when he comes down because he's going to. I create new heavens and a new earth and the former things shall not be remembered or come to mind. So he's already promised that in verse 16. Now he reiterates it. So what's going to happen? This condition of gladness and rejoicing that will be denied to the people who go after other gods will be enjoyed forever by the people who have been faithful to God. Verse 18, be glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem to be a joy and her people to be a gladness. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. When you read in the book of Isaiah, Jerusalem and Zion, they're physical locations, but they're code words. They're code words for where God lives with his people. 
So when you see that Jerusalem is a joy, what that means is God is going to enjoy his people forever. Did you know that? God is going to enjoy your company. This is the God who is waiting with his hands outstretched to speak to you, to hear you, and he says, I'm looking forward to living with you forever. Wow. And this is the God they said they couldn't find. Now we've got to wait for these things to manifest themselves in their fullness, but along the way we can have a foretaste of this joy, even now. And many of us here can testify to that, even in the midst of of difficulties but mark this what's being described here is not heaven this is the new creation the bible says very very little about what happens to people who die before god comes down very little just enough to make it sound better but not enough to really get us fired up because heaven is temporary accommodation So if you're wondering where your loved ones who have gone on before have gone, if they've trusted Jesus, they're with him. But when he comes back, they'll return with him. And the Bible doesn't promise that we're going to spend eternity swanning around on clouds with funny little gold rings above our heads playing harps. It doesn't promise that at all. That's the world of the cartoonist. The Bible promises that we are going to live in eternity forever and unending ever in restored bodies, in a wonderfully restored creation. A completely new creation. That's what that's the vision that's painted here in, in Isaiah 65. And it's going to be a place of rejoicing forever. And that's what's, that, that, that's what's envisaged in these verses. Now, verse, there's some difficult things in, in the verses that follow, but it's worth teasing them out. No more shall there be an infant who lives but a few days. Or an old man who does not fill out his days. This is verse 20. For the young man shall die a hundred years old and the sinner a hundred years old shall be accursed. What Isaiah is doing is using poetry to describe the indescribable. Now, um, the Apostle Paul quotes from Isaiah in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 9. He quotes Isaiah 64 and, and Paul writes, What no eye has seen nor ear heard nor the heart of man imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. Can you imagine a world without sin? Can you imagine a world without death? Can you imagine a world without tears or sadness? Can you? Dimly. So that we can get a grasp of it all, Isaiah uses figures that come from our world. What's one of the things that causes most sorrow in our world? Children dying. Won't happen anymore. What's Another great sadness is death. Now, the image here is that even if a person should die aged 100, well, we'll think, gee, they died before their time. But there won't be any death anymore because we've already been told in Isaiah 25 he's going to swallow up death forever. So he's using figures of speech that we do get to understand a world that we can barely imagine. That's what poets do. Now, the one about the sinner there, what that means is someone who's under God's curse, they might even make it to 100, but it will be discovered and it will be dealt with. So one of the biggest problems that people like us have is we look around and think, doesn't God care about all the injustice? All the criminals who seem to get away with it, all the leaders who lead so badly and impose 
dreadful tyranny on on their subjects doesn't got some of them seem to live quite well well even if they live to 100 they'll be found out that's what this the the future world will contain nothing uh that that dishonors god there'll be no sin there'll be no death there'll be no more frustration that's what verses 21 to 23 uh, talk about have you ever had your dream shattered have you set yourself on something and it just doesn't happen they won't go on anymore. You'll never build a house and not live in it. You won't plant a, a crop and not harvest it. Um, they shall not bear children in vain. They shall not labour in vain or bear children for calamity, verse 23, for they shall be the offspring of the blessed of the Lord and their descendants with them. Now, I've taken great hope from that verse as I've had a look at it this week because you know what that means? It means those who've suffered the loss of a child or of a loved one, if they've trusted Jesus, will be reunited. That's what it means. Look at it. They shall not labour in vain or bear children for calamity. Bearing children for calamity means bringing a child into the world only to have them subject to dreadful suffering. Have you got time for one more story? I read in the Australian newspaper in 2021 that Sydney's leading vasectomy surgeon was amazed at the number of men under the age of 25 coming in to see him to make it impossible for them to bear children. So this got into the newspaper. And you know the number one reason? They said, I can't bear to bring children into a world that's going to be doomed by climate change. So we now are surrounded by people who have no hope because to have children is a statement of confidence in the future. But no child will be born to calamity. What this means is that the world is going to be so wonderful, so secure, so unendingly good that there'll be nothing that threatens our security. But then the second half of the verse, for they shall be the offspring, the seed of the blessed of the Lord and their descendants with them. You'll be reunited with your loved ones. Their descendants will be with them. That's a great hope. So, death will always be an interruption, but it's going to, it's going to be gone. Um, verse 24, before they call, I will answer. That's what the God who's been waiting to hear his people's prayers says. While they are yet speaking, I will hear. Verse 25, the wolf and the lamb shall graze together. The lion shall eat straw like the ox. Natural enemies are going to be reconciled and at peace. That's the image there. Even Fluffy lambs won't have to be scared anymore because ravenous wolves won't eat them. Imagine that. That's the kind of world we're headed for. But look at this. Here's the end of evil. Dust shall be the serpent's food. That, that's a representation of the, the very origin of evil and it will be done with. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountains, says the Lord. So it's a vision of a world completely at peace. It's the world you really want. But how do you get there? By faith. By putting your faith in God. The God who sent his servant son to pay for sins that weren't his own. These are the blessings that come to the servants of the one who's revealed in Isaiah 53 as the servant. So if you want these blessings, the only way to access them is by faith in the God who reveals himself through the Lord Jesus. 
So how should we live while we wait? Because waiting is hard. Well, we need to continue to live as though we're God's offspring. We need to continue to worship him according to the way that he's, he's uh, spoken. We need to rejoice in the fact that we've, we've been chosen by him and he won't ever let us go. But we need to continue to seek him and serve him. It's all there in Isaiah 65 verses 9 to 10. How do you live while you're waiting? Seek him and serve him. Seek him in prayer and serve him whatever way you can. But Hebrews chapter 6, I've got it printed on your outline there if you wanted to see it on the, on the bulletin. Um, the, the writer of the Hebrews says to people who are thinking about chucking it all in because it's just too hard. Waiting is difficult. And this is what the writer to the Hebrews says, Hebrews 6 verses 11 to 12, we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness, to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. How do you inherit God's promises? Faith in God through the Lord Jesus Christ and patience, because waiting's involved. We need to wait for God to come down. But when he does... He's going to make everything new. Let's pray. Father, these are wonderful things. They're beyond our ability to really grasp. So we pray that you would help us, grow us in faith, enlarge our hearts to accept these things as true. Help us to search our hearts to make sure that we really are in your family, that we really do belong to you through faith in your servant son. Uh, But help us then to live out that, uh, that faith in patient waiting, in hopeful waiting, in, uh, in prayerful waiting and in, in, in the acts of service that we perform for you, for others. Father, we uh, thank you for these words. We pray that you would write them on our hearts. We pray that you would cherish, help us to cherish them and, and be formed by them in the days that lie ahead. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.